Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kia ora and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. I'm your host, Alison Balance. Teeth can tell us a surprising amount about an animal's lifestyle, where it goes, what it eats. And not just teeth, as I discover when I meet Niwa's Brittany Graham. Brittany works with marine megafauna, such as whales and sea lions, but that doesn't mean she spends a lot of time at sea with them. I deal with very tiny samples from them, but I am lucky every once in a while to go on some oceanic um, voyages to get more direct samples from them. But at the end of the day, a lot of my life is spent studying little samples collected from these animals, from everything from whiskers taken from these seals and sea lions to little tissue samples that are collected from them when they're tagged. So what is the whisker of a sea lion going to tell you? So if you grab that whisker from the sea lion, it's a bit like our hair in that it grows incrementally, um, so it grows as we age. And so I can look at um, areas close to um, the base of it, and that'll tell me what it's recently been feeding on, and I can look at the tip of the whisker and figure out what it's been eating sometime in the past. So what is it about that whisker that tells you what it's been eating? The tool that we use is called stabilized tip analysis, and it's quite simple in that the nitrogen that we find in, in both our tissues and animal tissues, it has isotope values. And the isotope values of our tissues are a direct reflection of our diet. So let's say I just ate, uh, let's say, mussels from um, Wellington Harbor. My isotope value of that nitrogen isotope value would be three units higher than the mussels. Explain that three units to me. Yep, it's the unit that we use for measurement, so it's called three per mil, um, but it's just the three units. So every time you go up a trophic level in a food web, you go up three steps or three units, and that gives us an idea of where an animal is in the food web and also what it's eating. Is that because as you go up the food web, you're basically accumulating stuff because you might be one person, but you might have eaten six mussels? Yes, that's actually a good point. So you're accumulating it, but also we're excreting the light value. Um, So as we process food, we excrete the light isotope quicker than we excrete the heavy one. So the heavy one stays inside us, and we excrete and process the light one. So we get a little bit heavier as you go up the food web. So the isotopes you look at, is nitrogen the only one? Nope, there's a whole range. So we look mainly at what's called stable isotopes. So that means that they're not radioactive. And we look at everything from carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and hydrogen. These are all um, basic elements that are found in all of our tissues. So we look at the isotope ratios of those elements and they tell us a range of things. But what we typically focus on in marine ecology and, and marine food webs is carbon and nitrogen. Those are our, our two go-to isotopes. And nitrogen tells us a lot about the diet, as I just explained. And carbon is a bit more of a conservative tracer. So I can um, determine if, let's say, a seal or um, a tuna or a shark is feeding close to the coast, because that has a different carbon isotope value, versus a pelagic or open ocean system. 
So tell me about some of the things you've looked at and, and some of the things you've found. It's been very exciting. Some of the work that we've done is we've recently looked at some tuna, sharks, and billfish collected around New Zealand from the fishery. So MPI puts observers on these fishing boats, and they've been kind enough to collect tissue, actual muscle tissues, the same stuff that we actually eat in sushi restaurants. And then they send them to us, and we're looking at those. And we're actually using that to understand the movements of, of the tuna, the billfish, and the sharks around New Zealand. And what we're finding, which is similar to some tagging data that, that's been done, is that these animals are not staying in New Zealand waters long. They're um, immigrating in and foraging for a while and immigrating out. The pattern's quite random, which is not what we expected. We kind of expected maybe all the tunas to come from the tropics and enter the New Zealand waters in the summer when they warm and then leave when the waters start to cool again. But it looks like they're kind of doing almost a, a yo-yo dance down from the tropics and back up. The movements are, are quite random, which is, is something that we haven't seen in other places in the Pacific. So how does that manifest in your sample? So you were seeing a tropical signature, a temperate signature, exactly. a tropical signature. Exactly. So at any given time, if you're on a fishing vessel or you're out fishing yourself and you took a sample of muscle tissue from these fish, some of them look tropical, some of them look more temperate or more New Zealand-based. So what kind of sharks have you been working on? So mainly um, three that are caught in the tuna fishery, and that's poor beagle, blue sharks, and macos. And they're quite interesting in that the macos seem to definitely be showing this behavior of um, coming back and forth from New Zealand. Their isotope values are very varied from those individuals that look tropical to those that look like they've been around New Zealand for longer periods of time. And what about poor beagles? Tell me about poor beagle sharks. They're also showing a similar pattern. They tend to, um, I can say it just as an overview, that they seem to be spending a bit more time around New Zealand compared to the macas and the blues. So as far as they are in the food web, they're all quite high trophic level or apex predators, but with the maco coming a little bit ahead of the rest. But poor beagles of the three seem to be spending a little bit more time around New Zealand than the others. Can you show me how you go about determining all of this? Obviously, the most critical part is the person who's collecting the samples. Um, so thankfully, um, we're able to rely on a lot of great folks in the field. Um, so from the MPI observers on fishing vessels to people down on Auckland Islands that are doing censuses of the sea lions. We even rely on recreational fishers to, to collect um, billfish samples for us or shark samples for us. And then we grind the sample down into a fine dust and then we uh, package it in a way that, that we can enter it into our mass spec. And that's the machine that provides the isotope samples. And then the machine combusts these samples into gases. And that's what it's actually measuring is the, the isotopes of the gases, of nitrogen gas and, and CO2. And then we get that data. And then I spend a lot of time sitting at my desk making sure I can figure out what that data means. You mentioned sea lines. So what have you been looking at with the sea lions and what have you found? Yep, so with the sea lions, that's some of the first work that we did. We have boxes and boxes of sea lion teeth. You do have boxes and boxes of samples all in plastic bags. And wow, lots yep. of... They're quite big, chunky teeth, aren't they? They are, but if you see that, that's actually the only portion you would see if you were actually... If the sea lion was smiling at you. Um, and that, the, the rest of that part is in the jaw. But what we do is these um, teeth have been collected by um, a whole host of um, scientists, but ma mainly from Massey University, to look at um, the reasons that they uh, perished or died. And we have also samples from Te Papa. So we've been able to get teeth all the way back to the early 1900s, about 1920. So we 
slice these teeth, and then we look at the annual bands in the teeth, and we're able to drill them and take that material from the annual band. Ah, so you look at one year, and then the subsequent year, and the yep. subsequent year. So if the sea lion, let's say, was 15, we can look at that 15 years of that sea lion's life. We mainly focus on females because they're critical to the population. And we were able to look from 1920 up to almost present um, because there's been the significant decline at the Auckland Islands to see if we could see any patterns. Um, and what we did see is that there are large patterns, and we think that it might be driven by environmental variability. So there's been shifts in the environment or the ocean conditions around uh, the Auckland Islands that, that is showing up in the sea lion teeth. So that might mean, for instance, that water currents changed, water masses moved, and they might have been feeding on one species they switched to another species, is that what you mean? Yep, it could be either of those, or it could be also a shift in the primary production or the carrying capacity of the area. Um, so there are three really quite big um, hypotheses to test, um, and, and that's what future work needs to do is, you know, is there been changes in ocean conditions such as water masses, or are they switching their prey? The data suggests that it, it definitely has to be more than switching prey. It has something to do with the, the food web in that region shifting. So what we're doing now is we're going to be soon looking at seabirds, um, some albatross species in the subantarctics, and we're going to be taking their feathers and um, more recently some blood samples and seeing if we see similar patterns for them as well to see if we see this variability that suggests that there's been changes in the ocean conditions. Still a lot of work to be done, but the initial results from the sea lions is, um, suggest that there's a real, a real significant story there. So it will be a case of seeing whether what you see in the seabirds is the same pattern that you see in the sea lions? Exactly. So we want to do multiple species, um, mainly all top predators or, or marine megafauna, to see if we see the same patterns in the Auckland Islands as we do in the Campbell Islands. Um, um, we're looking to uh, do some work on the penguins as well because there's been some declines in, in some of the species, as many people know. Um, so we're trying to link all these species together to understand the subantarctic and see if there are patterns, large patterns, of change that are affecting these species differently and, and causing some of the declines or, or population fluctuations. Just thinking those teeth, they're giving you a, a, almost a permanent record for an individual. So every year it's laying down a new layer and that's permanently there. If you wanted to look at something over a much shorter time span, say something like weeks or months, what would be the best kind of sample to have for that. Yep. So you would pick blood would probably be your best choice and what we do with blood is um, you can actually just spin in a simple centrifuge and you get the red blood cells and you get the plasma and the plasma turns over very very quickly um, days to weeks so that's the one that we usually go after if we want a really short term answer and then the whole blood's a little bit longer term. On the other extreme um, another study that we recently started is looking at the skulls of beaked whales that they hold at Te Papa so they have this amazing collection of whale skulls, once again dating back to the early 1900s, of a whole range of species. And the number of beaked whale species around New Zealand is the highest in any place on the planet. Pretty much we just don't know much about these beaked whales. So we want to know about the diet and their movements. So we're taking the actual skull or bone material, and that gives an indication of almost the lifetime of that animal. So that's the other extreme. You can go from blood to look at you know, what an animal has done recently to something like skull or bone material. And what's also exciting, too, is this is getting back to animals that could be extinct as well. So it's a great way of getting insights into lifestyle. It is. It definitely. We can recreate ecosystems that don't exist anymore by just getting our hands on the right samples.
So this all sounds like a great tool to complement other ways of studying things, you know, other ways of looking at diet, other ways of tracking where animals go. Are there any kinds of animals that it doesn't work so well for? Yes, there are. For this tool to work, you have to forage in different areas that have isotopically different values. One example would be humpback whales. At least in um, the southern hemisphere, they, they forage almost entirely in the southern ocean, and then they go to the tropics to mate and breed. But they don't eat there. They don't eat there. So if we look at the isotope values from, let's say, a biopsy that we take from their skin, it's telling us that they're foraging in the southern ocean, even if we collect the sample from around New Zealand. So it's not going to be a useful tool for saying that these whales go to these particular places in the, in the Pacific. It's not going to give you that information. No, it's going to tell you that they really like the krill in the southern ocean. And the same would be for, let's say, for example, a seabird. If a seabird migrated a long distance but didn't forage along that distance, you could only tell about the um, starting point and the end point. So there are some marine animals that uh, this tool is definitely not the best tool to, to inform you on what they're doing. Thanks, Brittany. That was Brittany Graham from Niwa. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 5th of April 2018. You can find us online at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld on the RNZ app or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Radio Public. Please rate and review us. These help other people find us and we'd just like to share our podcasts with more ears. There are plenty of other RNZ podcasts to check out as well, If you have kids and need some ideas on coping with them, then Catherine Ryan's regular parenting segment on 9 to Noon is now a podcast called It Takes a Village. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Look forward to hanging out with you there. Bye for now. Hey, corner mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.